0: So turn your Bibles to the book of Judges. From the front, you'll see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. Of course, it was just a few months ago that we finished our series in Joshua, and so the plan is to just keep going with a series in Judges. I don't know if Ruth is next. Probably. We'll see. A long time to decide. Now, just to review briefly, the book of Judges began as, my the book of Joshua, began as Israel's second generation was preparing to enter into the promised land. Of course, Israel's first generation, the one that God brought up out of slavery, out of Egypt, that first generation, the Exodus generation, that generation failed to enter into the promised land because they they did not believe God's promises. Uh, Rather, they believed that faithless report that ten of the spies brought back from their survey of the land. And so that first generation, the Exodus generation, um, they were condemned to die, to live and to die, and to wander outside of the land that God had promised. The book of Joshua begins as the second generation, okay, the Exodus generation's kids, as that second generation, um, they are preparing to enter into the land God promised. They are, they are led by Joshua. And uh, Joshua had actually gone with Joshua the faithless spies, but he, along with a guy named Caleb, came back with a faithful report. They were confident that the Lord was more than powerful enough to fulfill all the promises that he had made to his people. And so after Moses died, who got the people, by God's power, to the edge of the Jordan River, Joshua became the leader of Israel to take them in. And then the book of Joshua, God gave Israel the land through conquest. And so we see stories in Joshua, like the one about Rahab's faith and the falling of the walls of Jericho. There's a story of the crossing of the Jordan River. There's a story of Achan's sin and Israel's defeat before that little tiny city called Ai. And then there's, of course, the story of how God bends the sun and the moon for the sake of his people in that famous battle. And many more. Then in the middle chapters of Joshua, we have all of these uh, geographical indicators as God allots pieces of land to families and tribes. And so finally, In this portion of the book, all these promises of land become reality. Uh, God's promise finally becomes dirt and water and stone and fields and trees and cities. And then lastly, the book of Joshua concludes, as you heard Brian read today, it concludes with a warning to be faithful to God so that they might be able to complete the conquest and also remain in the land. And so that brings us to the book of Judges. Now when we bought our house here in Richfield, we were very excited that it came with a working snow blower. <laughs> However, when winter came, I quickly found out that the fact that a snow blower can be turned on does not mean it is any good at blowing snow. So that first winter, I shoveled our huge driveway pretty much entirely without the use of a snow It's my, uh, that next year, that fall, we bought a nice, big snowblower. I wanted to get the kind with the huge, like, tank treads, but that was a little outside our price range. So we did get a nice one, and it's my goal that this snowblower lasts for years. And so to do that, every year, as we get into the later portion of the fall, I will get out my, my user manual, and I'll go through the process of getting my snowblower ready for the winter. And this involves greasing various points, changing the oil, checking the lubricant in the auger gear case, and picking up a few gallons of non-oxygenated fuel. Now, I have just told you everything I know about small engines. Okay? I don't know very much. And so I'm trusting that if I follow the manual, this thing will last forever. After all, there are only two kinds of people in this world, right? Those who read manuals and those who wish they had. <laughs> now, the opening chapters... In Judges are a kind of manual, but this manual does not tell us how to succeed. It actually tells us how to fail. Our text for today, Judges 1-1 through 2-5, is a manual, a step-by-step guide explaining how to fail in the fight against sin. So look with me at Judges 1, Judges 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, now I'll stop there. Okay, I won't keep stopping that quickly, but we'll stop there for a second. Okay. You see, the book of Judges begins the exact same way that the book of Joshua began. When Joshua began, Moses had just died. So the book of Joshua begins with the death of Moses. Now the book of Judges begins with the death of Joshua. And So the question is, who is going to lead Israel now that Joshua is no longer here? Verse 1 again. After the death of Joshua the people of Israel inquired of the Lord who shall go up for us first against the Canaanites to fight against them. The Lord said Judah shall go up that's one of the tribes I have given the land into his hand. So what do we know so far? We know 3 things at least. Number 1, we know that there is not going to be another individual like Moses or like Joshua that will lead Israel altogether to take the rest of the land second going along with that we know that the tribes of israel are now going to fight more independently as they remove the lands inhabitants that still remain and that work is going to start with judah the tribe of judah and third we know that even though even though moses and joshua are gone the lord has not wavered in his commitment to fulfill the promises of his covenant that he made with abraham he says, I have given the land into Judah's hand. The Lord is ready to pick up right where he left off with Joshua. Verse three. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Notice that Judah does not head off to battle in response to the Lord's directive, like right away. And some people actually fault Judah for this, as if they're not willing to go by themselves, but they want to take somebody with them because they don't trust the Lord. However, I think it makes more sense to say that Judah invites the partnership of Simeon because Simeon was such a small tribe, and because Simeon's inheritance was actually within the inheritance of the tribe of Judah. And so it makes perfect sense that these tribes would work together to conquer the inhabitants that remain. So that's a good sign. Verse 4. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, he used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai, Shishai, and Ahimon and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Zephyr. So clearly, Judah and Simeon are on a roll. The work to drive out the inhabitants of the land is progressing once again, quickly and decisively, just as it had under Joshua's leadership. And then we come to verse 12, and our focus narrows from these tribes that are out there conquering to families and individuals, the family of Caleb specifically. Look at verse 12. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now, do you remember Caleb? I mentioned him just a few minutes ago. Caleb and Joshua were the two good spies who came back with a faithful report in Numbers 14. And though the Exodus generation rejected that faithful report and decided to to not trust the Lord, the Lord actually blessed Joshua and Caleb with their report and promised to Caleb the land of Hebron. And remember, Hebron was actually the, the home of the unusually tall and mighty people that caused such fear in the hearts of the Israelites And so now we see that Caleb actually conquers for his inheritance the very same place that struck such fear in the hearts of the first generation. And now in Judges 1, 12 to 15, like we just read there, we see the spirit of Caleb and his descendants. In the next generation, Caleb's son-in-law, like Caleb, becomes known for capturing a city and thereby winning Caleb's daughter. Israel is better off when there are more people like Caleb in Israel. And it's an encouraging, positive sign to see more of them here. So again, this is, a, this is a good thing to see people like Caleb coming up in the next generation. Finally, verse 17 starts to wrap up this stuff about Judah's ventures. They were also successful in helping the tribe of Simeon to clear their inheritance of its current inhabitants. Verse 17, And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath, and devoted it to destruction. And so again, Judah is successful in their fight to drive out the inhabitants. Verse 19, the Lord was with Judah. And that verse ends, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. Now, for those of us who have grown up hearing the Bible, reading the Bible, perhaps the reality of what God is commanded Israel to do in the conquest, perhaps that reality is is somewhat lost on us. I mean, God has commanded Israel to take the land from this people by destroying them and wiping them out. And so perhaps that harsh reality of conquest is something we no longer notice anymore. In fact, our series in the book of Joshua, we spent an entire sermon asking really hard questions about how God can give uh, Israel such commands? And the answers we found actually made us think more of God, not less. And we get concluded that because of who we found God to be, he is the kind of God we need and the kind of God we want. And today I'm not going to, I'm not going to rehash all of that. You can go listen to it on our website, but I want to make one more observation about the conquest since it appears here in our text today. One of the reasons that God commanded Israel to destroy the lands of inhabitants was to protect Israel from the corrupting influence of their idolatry. God had commanded Israel to take extreme measures in the fight against sin. They were to take up physical weapons against the wicked, idolatrous inhabitants of the land in order to save Israel from the same judgment. That is extreme. Is an extreme measure to protect Israel from this corrupting influence. But it is not uncommon for God to call his people to extreme measures in their fight against sin. I think we know what Jesus said. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hellfire. Now, Jesus has not called us to take up physical weapons against those who don't believe in him like we do. And Jesus is also not commanding us to tear out our eyes. Our heart is the real problem, but Jesus is calling us to extreme measures in our fight against sin, lest we, like the Exodus generation, fail to enter into the blessing God has promised Israel's war against the land and land's inhabitants, the fact that she picks up these weapons to fight and to kill in order to protect her from the corrupting influence of their idolatry, that, that is an intensity that should be matched in our intense fight against sin for our personal lives. And so let me ask you this. Does the way that you fight sin, your flesh, the devil, and the world, does, does your fight match that kind of intensity? When you think about, you know, that sin, the sin that has, has plagued you and dogged you for years, when was the last time you made a change in your life against that sin that felt, it was, it, was, it was so extreme that it felt like you had just ripped out your eye? It was that inconvenient. It was that extreme. One of the ways to make sure you fail in the fight against sin is not to take extreme measures against it. If that sin for you is pornography, then maybe you need to downgrade to a flip phone, if those can still be found, or get rid of your TV or computer. If that sin for you is that you just can't get along with a certain brother or sister at church, then maybe you need to partner with someone and commit to pray for God's blessing on that brother or sister every single day. If that sin for you is maybe sexual interaction when dating, then maybe you need to go only on double dates. If that's in for you, is how you respond when your kids disobey, then maybe you need to invite other families into your home more often so they can see exactly what's happening and encourage you. And if your response to any of these ideas or suggestions is to say, Phil, that, that seems a little, little extreme, I think Jesus would say, exactly. Exactly. Now, the rest of Judges 1. Briefly announces how the other tribes fared in their own ventures to drive out the land's inhabitants. We won't read the the rest, but I'll kind of summarize as you look down through there. It's very repetitive. In verse 21, the tribe of Benjamin does not clear out the inhabitants of Jerusalem, but rather chooses to live among them. In verses 22 to 26, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh they conquer the city of Luz. And what happens in that story? should remind you of what happened with Rahab. It's like they're trying to recreate the Rahab-Jericho incident. So there's this, there's this Luz insider. They're going out to the city of Luz and they have this insider, this informant, and they allow that Luz insider to live because of the inside information they gave to the tribes, which brought the city down in battle. And so they destroy the city of Luz They're victorious there, and they let this Luz insider go, their informant, and what does he do? He goes out, and he builds a new city, and he calls it, anybody know what he calls it? He calls it Luz, which makes you wonder if Ephraim and Manasseh really accomplished anything because of how they went about it. In verse 27, the tribe of Manasseh does not drive out a list of people groups in their inheritance, and so eventually, uh, those people become forced labor for Israel. Likewise, in verse 29, the tribe of Ephraim does not drive out the current inhabitants, um, but lives among them. Verses 30 through 33, we read the same kind of announcement for the tribes of Zebulun, Asher, and Naphtali. Each one does not drive out the land's current inhabitants, but rather lives among them and sometimes puts them to forced labor. And then finally, in verse 34, the tribe of Dan, actually they actually try to drive out the Amorites, but the Amorites push them back. Until one day Ephraim gets strong enough and Ephraim is able to put the Amorites to forced labor. Again, not driving them out. So what do you think about all these, all these stories of, of conquest in Judges 1? Or these, these brief summaries of, of what's been going on. How is the conquest going now? Okay, well, we had said before that Judah started out really well. right? There was that story about the king of Bezek. But even that story about the king of Bezat kind of felt weird, didn't it? They brought the king back to Jerusalem rather than kill him, as the Lord had commanded, number one. And then there was that thing they did to him. Judah cuts off the king's big toes and thumbs. And in doing so, they treat him just as he treated those whom he had conquered. And maybe there's some justice in that But this also seems like a hint that Judah is starting to adopt the ways of the land's current inhabitants. Judah may be driving out the land's inhabitants, but at the same time, Judah and Israel are also becoming more and more like them. And then later, there's that puzzling statement that I just kind of flew over, and I hope it jarred you, at the end of verse 19, where it says, The Lord was with Judah, and Judah took possession of the hill country, But Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain. Why? Because they had chariots of iron. Does that verse kind of just jump out at you? Like, what in the world? I mean, the the Lord was with Judah, and so we expect there to be this victory, right? Remember, Remember what happened at the Battle of Jericho? Israel walks around the city. And what happens to the walls? They fall down. Okay, so, so if Israel can, can walk around a city and the walls fall down, then why would Israel have trouble defeating a people who had iron chariots? I mean, is that, is that so much better than walls? And furthermore, God had actually already promised Israel that they were going to come up against nations and peoples much mightier, much better equipped than they were, and that God was going to defeat them. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses told Israel that they would defeat nations more numerous and mightier than they were. Just in Joshua 17, in the last book, he had told two of Israel's tribes this. He said, you will drive out Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. And so the Lord was with Judah. The Lord was ready to fight, but it seems that Judah's confidence in the Lord must have been surpassed by their fear of these chariots, the fear of the technology that these tribes, these nations had. And it only gets worse from there. Throughout the rest of the chapter, again and again, you saw it with me, we read that Israel defeats these nations, but they don't destroy them. They don't, they don't push them out. They don't wipe them out. Rather, Israel opts rather to, to live among the nations and sometimes put them to forced labor. But, but at least they're winning battles, right? That's the good news. At least Israel's is coming out on top in almost every, almost every battle. Well, if there's any question as to to how the conquest is going, is whether God is pleased with this new approach that Israel is taking. If there's any doubt whether this situation is, is really all that bad, the Lord comes in Judges 2 and tells us what he thinks. So look at Judges 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides. And their gods will be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, they lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So in these words of the Lord to Israel, he reminds Israel of just how just how gracious he has been to them. I brought you up out of Egypt. God had, God had rescued These people, their ancestors from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt and brought them out through the ten plagues and the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. I led you into the land that I swore to give to your ancestors. God had given them victory after victory after victory under the leadership of Joshua. I will never break my covenant with you. God had promised to always be faithful to the commitments he made in his covenant. I mean, look at all of the grace that this people has experienced at the hand of God. I mean, is there any other nation about which God could say these same things? No. This is the only nation whom God has been so gracious to. No other nation has known this grace of God. And the purpose of this conquest was to bring Israel, God's covenant people, into a place where they could could live with God, a place where they could live as faithful covenant partners. And so naturally... God commanded Israel, don't, don't make any other covenants. and sh- Show no mercy to them. Furthermore, Israel was to destroy all of the idols, all of the places where the nations uh, who, whom they're dispossessing of their land, all the places where they had, they had worshipped these false gods, on all the hills and under every green tree. Because remember, the promised land is going to be a place where God can dwell with his people, his faithful covenant partners. Israel was like Adam and Eve, given a, given a special land where God could dwell with them. And in fact, when God comes to Israel and Judges 2, and he asks Israel that question, you see that question, what is this you have done? That is the same exact question that God asked Adam and Eve in the garden after their sin. Making covenants with the idolatrous inhabitants of the land and preserving their, their altars goes completely against the whole reason God has brought Israel into the land. Israel is like a bride taken by her loving fiance to Hawaii for a destination wedding. But on the day before the wedding, her fiance finds that she is hooked up with another guy she just met while on this trip to marry him. What is this you have done, he says? The whole reason I brought you here was for you to be mine. Here, this man is ready to give himself up to this woman in marriage, and then it becomes clear that that she hasn't taken this marriage covenant seriously at all. The Lord has been faithful to Israel, but Israel has not been faithful to the Lord. A covenant with the land's inhabitants would mean regular contact with those inhabitants, and that regular contact would mean regular interaction with them and regular interaction with their idols and their worship practices. It's never good when God's people become more comfortable with sin, or when God's people think that a a certain measure of sin is is probably okay now, or it should be just kind of the norm as we go forward. It's never okay when God's people tolerate what God has forbidden. In fact, much later, even in our New Testament, we'll see this happen in the New Testament, New Covenant people of God. In Romans, excuse me, in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul actually rebukes the church there because they they had accepted a man in their congregation, in their membership, in their number, who was living in open sexual immorality. They had tolerated what God forbidden. And then later we read today, Megan read from Revelation 2, where where we saw in Christ's letter to the church at Thyatira, he praises the church for their works, their love, their faith, their service, and their patient endurance. So many good things going on at that church. It seems like a great church. But then Christ rebukes them. Why? Because they were tolerating a false prophetess who was leading the members of that church into idolatry and adultery. And so in both cases, God's people had grown comfortable with, tolerant of what God had forbidden. We never want to get to a place where we are okay with something that God opposes. We saw the Corinthians fail to exercise church discipline. My prayer is that this church... RBC would never neglect church church discipline when it is warranted, just because perhaps the sinning, unrepentant member contributes significantly to the church's finances. We never want to get to a place where we overlook what God forbids. We saw the church at Thyatira accept false teaching. May it never be that this church would adopt a position on, on homosexuality or transgenderism that would endear us to our culture, but at the same time contradict or undermine the scriptures. We never want to be in a place where we are, we are getting more comfortable or we accept what God opposes. And this, this dangerous way of thinking also can become very personal in our personal lives. You think about what entertains us. Have we just accepted the fact that practically every new movie that comes out in our era, our age, is going to have nudity or a sex scene in it? And if we just accepted that, so just as long as it's not overly explicit or overly drawn out, I mean, if it gets really bad, if it's super long, we'll, we'll fast forward it. Are we really going to accept or tolerate as entertainment what God has forbidden? What in our relationships, our relationships to unbelievers? Are we going to support what our culture says is normal? Are we going to bring a bring a gift to the office party for our coworker who just got engaged to someone of the same sex? Are we going to celebrate or affirm what God has forbidden? One of the ways to make sure we fail in the fight against sin is to become comfortable with it, to tolerate what God has forbidden. But that's exactly what Israel did when they they made all those covenants and when they lived with the nations or lived among them. They did not destroy the idols And so God's judgment will be just what he promised. He is no longer, he says, I'm no longer going to drive out the nations before Israel. The people and their idols will be a constant problem for you. And so this is a dark day in Israel's history. But I would say that in the book of Judges, we are still in the bright section, if that can be believed. This is still in the bright section. This is a dark day in Israel's history. The people respond to the Lord's words with weeping and sacrifices. But as dark as it is here, there is a small ray of hope in this text. Did you catch it? Look back at what the Lord said in Judges 2, verse 1. He says, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Notice in this, in this judgment from the Lord, he maintains his commitment to the covenant. He has said, I will never break my covenant with you. So though Israel has been a faithless covenant partner with God, God is not going to abandon his plan to save through the promises of his covenant covenant. With Abraham, God is committed to this covenant, even if Israel is not. But faithless covenant partners like this generation of Israel, they will not enjoy the the blessings of God's promises. Israel's experience in the land is not going to be anything like it could have been if they had obeyed. Now, on the one hand, I hope I hope that when you read all this and hear all this, I hope that your heart responds with a desire to not be like Israel. I hope it is that your heart desires to be faithful. I hope your heart desires not to become comfortable with sin. I hope your, desi- your heart desires to take extreme measures against sin in your life. Those are all great desires, and I hope they are rising from our hearts this morning as we hear the word of the Lord. But before all of that, we must recognize that our faithfulness How faithful we are, how extreme we are against sin, how how uncomfortable we are with it, our faithfulness will not be the reason that we enjoy the salvation God promised in His covenant. If it were based on our faithfulness, then we would fare no better than did these Israelites in their quest to conquer the land's inhabitants. It doesn't matter how strict you are in the movies you watch, how strict you are in your relationships. If we are not trusting in the faithfulness of God, we will fare no better than the Israelites. God is so committed. He is so committed to this covenant. He's so committed to the salvation that he, he promised in this covenant that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live as one of us, as the God-man, always obeying his Father, always being the perfect, faithful covenant partner. And then Jesus died on the cross, not for his own sins, but for ours. And then God raised him from the dead, validating his suffering, his sacrifice, and also validating him as the faithful covenant partner through whom God will fulfill all the salvation that he's promised in his covenant. And so what remains for us, because of what Jesus has done, is to turn from our sin and to trust in Jesus to trust that he has already fought and already won the fight against our sin. His faithfulness and his victory counts for all of us who will trust him. So that through Jesus we will receive all of the salvation that God promised through his covenant, the covenant to which he is so committed. And so the final way to fail in the fight against sin is to fight as if the battle all depends upon you rather than on Jesus Christ. You, I, we, we are all too much like Israel. We will lose if we fight by ourselves. Don't get me wrong, we still need to fight. The New Testament is replete with fighting imagery for the Christian life. The fight will require extreme measures, and the fight will require that we never get comfortable with what God hates. But through all of that, our fundamental confidence must be in God's faithfulness through Jesus Christ, trusting that Christ's faithfulness counts for us by faith and that his blood covers all of our failures in this fight against sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you today for this word from the book of Judges. Thank you for the reminder of just how committed you are to your covenant And even before us today, this table, the reminder in it, again, of your commitment. So insistent are you on bringing your plan to pass that you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins and raised him from the dead. Thank you that it is not our faithfulness, our fighting ability, that will ultimately be what or the reason that we get to enjoy your salvation, but it is because of Christ. Well, Lord, we pray as we trust you and rest in what Jesus has done, we pray that you would give us the strength to fight with you hard against our sin, that we might bring glory to you, that we might look more and more and more like the one who died to save us, that together as a church, we would be holy and without blemish, for your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen.